This is Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast about how the world was, is, and will be ordered. Ever since President Trump announced the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria, realities on the ground have been moving at what feels like a breakneck speed. Yesterday, in an attempt to better understand it all, we caught up with Özgür Unlahesurchikla, the director of GMS Ankara office, for a deeper dive into Turkey's actions in the region and its relationship with the U.S. and Europe. Later in the day, right after a temporary ceasefire had been announced by Vice President Mike Pence, we sat down with Jonathan Katz here in D.C. to discuss the latest developments and how it's playing politically in the U.S. First, here's the conversation with Jonathan Katz. With Jonathan Katz, GMF senior fellow and the head of GMF's new Frontlines of Democracy initiative, also a out of order podcast regular. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, great to join you. So, John, tell us tell us a little bit about what happened in Turkey earlier today. The vice president and uh, and secretary of state Mike Pompeo were sent off to Turkey to try to uh, get President uh, Trump out of a, uh, I think one of his worst foreign policy debacles. Thunderous explosions echoed across northern Syria today as Turkish artillery and air power paved the way for an all-out ground. And there's assault. been many of them, but this one has actually uh, seen the president, who's in the middle of an impeachment inquiry lose a tremendous amount of support from Republicans who are concerned that the president uh, gave a green light to Turkey's President Erdogan for Turkey to go into northern Syria and take over a certain portion of northern Syria that was controlled uh, by U.S. allies, the Kurds, who had been a key component of the U.S. efforts to defeat ISIS in northern Syria. And so Pence and uh, Pompeo and, and several other leading administration national security officials flew off to Turkey. And this afternoon, it was announced by Vice President Pence that there's been a ceasefire. Uh, and only a few minutes later, a Turkish foreign minister came out and said there's no ceasefire, uh, but there's an agreement. And I think what the attempt uh, of the administration to do is one is one dig themselves out of a hole uh, after giving a green light for Turkey to do what it has done, which has included, you know, hundreds of deaths of Kurds, including civilians, over 100,000 displaced, uh, to go there to tr- try to really separate Turkish military operations from Kurds. And what the vice president said is we're going to, this five-day period is going to enable Kurds to, and Kurdish fighters to leave SDF, to leave the area uh, where Turkey wants to create a really a safe zone. Uh, and, and for the United States, it's about ensuring, uh, according to Vice President Pence, that Turkey's borders are secure, while also at the same time protecting Kurds. However, the damage has already been done, and uh, Kurds have already been displaced. Some have been killed uh, by Turkey and Turkey's proxies uh, in northern Syria, and so conditions on the ground that Turkey wanted all along that have already happened. So this deal is a deal they could have worked out previously. Uh, and it looks to a lot of people like a bit of a nothing burger when it comes to a deal that gives Erdogan exactly what he wants and leaves the U.S. weakened. And it still doesn't tell us what's going to happen with thousands of ISIS fighters that are in northern Syria. Some we know that have escaped already. Um, and the type of threat that may be for the United States, Europe, and other allies. 
And so there's a lot to be understood. And I think the bottom line is, is this issue of trust with Trump. Republicans and Democrats alike clearly don't believe that Trump is a trustworthy commander in chief. Now, that may not trickle down to U.S. domestic politics, but on foreign policy, over and over again, it's been Congress that has been unwilling to cede any ground to Trump because they just don't trust him. And so we'll see more um, as this deal is unfolded. I would expect that that Pompeo and Pence would go to the Hill and explain to Congress exactly what took place, what did they say in these conversations. Uh, and it should also be noted that within that conversation, what we have heard is that there's a Turkish bank that was involved in evading uh, U.S. sanctions on Iran um, that is currently going through a court case in New York. And this was raised as part of this conversation by Mr. Erdogan and, and the Turkish government. And it just makes one believe or at least concerned that perhaps there's another type of quid pro quo going on and that this interaction that we see between Turkey and the United States was choreographed in some way between Trump and Erdogan. You're talking about all this shooting as though it was part of a plan. Are you saying that you planned for these people to attack each other? No, no, but I do think this, David, I think it had to be an unconventional solution. It's in the interest of the United States and our security to understand why Trump is making the decision he's making. So if you're the head of the SDF or the, the Kurdish forces, what's your next move tomorrow morning? What are you thinking in the midst of this news? Well, you know, in some sense, the Kurds have, and Kurdish partners in the United States have moved on uh, from the United States. They're making deals with Russia, but making deals with uh, the Syrian government. You're already seeing Russians moving into former U.S. military bases. Uh, you're already seeing Syrian troops and Syrian military police move into cities where they weren't before in northern Syria. And I think we, what, what the U.S. has done is, is driven the Kurds who have had a relationship in the past with Russia uh, into their arms and has weakened the U.S. position vis-a-vis -vis resolution of the Syria issue. And so if I'm the Kurds, you know, how do you how do you trust a deal that the United States has made with Turkey when you've seen the U.S. sell you out before? How do you trust this administration to live up to its word, especially if you've partnered with them in dealing with such a difficult challenge as ISIS? And I think for the Kurds and for others, and that's why you see such a, a really vociferous reaction from Congress. Uh, today, uh, Lindsey Graham uh, introduced new a new set of sanctions on Turkey. Congress is going to speak with a very firm, singular voice that we will impose sanctions in the strongest measure possible against this Turkey, Turkish outrage uh, that will lead to the reemergence of ISIS, the destruction of an ally, the Kurds, and eventually benefit to Iran at the detriment of Israel. Some of it related to the sale of the S-400 uh, missile defense system that Turkey bought from Russia. Uh, but also related to this recent incursion. And I think you're, you're seeing Congress, an angry Congress, um, that is, uh, doesn't believe that the president is carrying out foreign policy in the best interest of the United States. Congress needing to step in. And it matters because Congress views the, the effort of the Kurds uh, and the effort to combat ISIS as something to look as a positive model, regardless of 
the real security concerns of Turkey, and they are real concern, uh, uh, security concerns, concerns with respect to the PKK and YPG partners, Kurds in Syria. Uh, but I think that this is really the fallout is, is the U.S. reputation um, and for allies and other partners, um, trust, uh, which is critical when you're dealing with major national security issues, including the threats of Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, who's going to trust this administration when it comes to a deal? Looking into the slightly longer term future, the United States is no longer in Syria or will not be in Syria. Where did the cards fall? You know, Syria is, is, is the Syria conflict is an incredibly, um, it's complex because it's got so many different um, elements to it, uh, a number of different uh, countries that have intervened, uh, both internally in terms of boots on the ground, but in terms of support, military, and otherwise. You have tens of millions of refugees um, that are scattered both in Turkey, but also in Europe. And, you know, President Erdogan wants to return. You know, Turkey has taken in, I think this is actually very positive. They took in about 3.6 million refugees from from Syria. There was also a, a mass exodus of those that went to Europe, which created all sorts of instability internally in Europe as well. Uh, Erdogan wants to return these, these Syrians to a, this safe zone, a safe zone that, you know, either then they're displacing the people actually from this area um, to, to bring new people and creating new conditions on the ground. And who manages this, the safe zone. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, it, the, if there's no infrastructure there to, you know, to take in these people. They're, you know, these Syrians who fled, fled because out of fear that there would be retribution from the Assad government, the same government now that is reaping the benefits of the U.S. withdrawing and moving in. And so, you know, if I'm those, you know, 3.6 million Syrians and I'm looking at the conditions internally in Syria at like a safe zone in space and I'm safe and secure in Turkey, my family, um, I'm not moving back to that safe zone. So it's, I think it's, you know, a fool's errand to try to bring those Syrians back under this circumstance. Everyone wants to see, I think all parties um, would like to see Syria not be in the middle of a conflict, but what each side wants, what the Russians want, what Assad wants, uh, what the United States, what Turkey wants, what the EU wants and others, um, these are different outcomes. And and that issue has not been resolved, is how do you get to to the end of this conflict and who do you hold accountable? Who are you holding accountable for the bombing of of hospitals? Recent reports of that the Russian military was directly involved in bombing Syrian hospitals. When we talk about holding Turkey accountable this week, it's, it shouldn't be lost on us that there have been millions of others that have been killed in this conflict. Russia is directly responsible for serious human rights violations, war crimes, and these issues are going to have to be dealt with. And if they're not, you're going to continue to have a destabilized Syria internally. And particularly as as other powers, global powers, play games within this space, and so I don't think we're going to see the last of what you know has taken place in Syria um, or this region, for that matter. And the U.S., as much as the President of the United States wants the U.S. not to be involved in any anything in the Middle East, I think that's that's not possible. Okay, before we wrap, just one last question. It feels like here in Washington, we're we're really on a bit of a two-track diplomacy. You have the White House doing its thing over here. You have Congress doing their thing over there. How does this play out 
what are you looking for and, and what would you like to see in terms of U.S. policy towards Turkey in the future? Well, there's there's a couple of things. One, keeping in mind both for Congress and the administration that Turkey is a NATO ally, has been a partner, and that Turkey is a diverse country that had recent local elections that actually ended up being more democratic than we thought they would be, even though President Erdogan tried to reverse the decision. So that's not really democratic, but uh, but you can see that within the Turkish population, there was a diverse view of opinions, a country that split, um, and that does look West. Many of them wants to be part of Euro-Atlantic institutions, still values its membership in NATO. And I think we have to be careful punishing the Turkish people for the actions of somebody who's become an authoritarian within Turkey, really controlling all levers of government. You know, the PKK issue and Kurdish terrorism internally is a real issue within Turkey. Tens of thousands of people were killed over a number of years. Uh, it's a domestic issue, too, that hasn't been resolved. Concerns about Turks have a this real concern about being like ripped apart into pieces. And this is based on what took place at the beginning of the last century with foreign powers coming in and tearing Turkey apart uh, after the, the Ottoman Empire declined. And so I think there's this internal concerns always in Turkey about this happening. And I think you know these are legitimate concerns. But what's happened is that Erdogan himself over the last decade has eroded any goodwill towards Turkey here in Washington. And those, those you know, members of Congress, uh, and I work for a member of Congress who created something called the Congressional Turkey Caucus that spent a lot of time focused on U.S.-Turkish relations. A lot of those people and organizations and others within Washington that supported the relationship have abandoned it. And it's been primarily because of President Erdogan and has to do with his policies on back in 2014 when the U.S. wanted Turkey's involvement in combating ISIS. Turkey didn't engage then. Um, it, it revolved around the detention of Pastor Brunson, which shouldn't have happened. It has involved this effort by Erdogan internally to really consolidate power, suppress democracy, throw journalists in jail. Turkey has one of the worst records on free media. Tens of thousands of people have been arrested, and the list goes on. But it's hard for people in Washington now to separate Turkey from Erdogan. And I think we need, my hope is that policymakers will think about Turkey separate from Erdogan, but also at the same time, hold accountable governments that are responsible for human rights violations or the type of action that might take place in Syria. And I think acknowledging and working on these problems is important. And my expectation on this issue, I think was really my long-winded way to get to your, your, your question is that, you know, I think the expectation is that this has been building up the congressional distrust of Erdogan, of concerns about things that he is doing that harm what people believe to be U.S. national security interests has reached you know, a crescendo. You're likely to see action being taken by Congress. I mentioned the introduction of sanctions legislation, and I think we're likely to see that move forward in some form. You know, It's been all of these things combined that have, have dramatically changed the view of Turkey and Washington from the days when I was on the Hill uh, working for the House Foreign Affairs Committee and a member of Congress who chaired the Congressional Turkey Caucus 
to today. And I think you just really, I don't think you can count on your hand uh, a group of people who are supportive of the policies of President Erdogan in Washington, D.C. And I hope that at some point we can get beyond the personalities of Trump and Erdogan and get back to the business of, of rebuilding a relationship that was critically important to both Turkey and the United States for decades. New video this morning shows evidence of gunfire and shelling in one Syrian city along the Turkish border just hours after the ceasefire agreement was announced. Sometimes you have to let them fight. It's like two kids in a lot, you gotta let them fight and then you pull them apart. But it was unconventional. But they fought for a few days and it was pretty vicious. And, and now here's our earlier conversation with Özgür Unlahırsıçıklı the director of GMS Ankara office, about how Turkey's relationship with the U.S. and EU has set the stage for the situation today. So, Ozgur, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. My pleasure. So let's zoom out a little bit and talk about Turkey's relationship with the U.S. and Europe. Where do Turkish-European relations go from here, and how has this impacted uh that, which were already quite tense. Yeah, let me start by talking about uh, U.S.-Turkey relationship first, because it's actually more complicated than uh, EU-Turkey relationship. So even before uh, this uh, operation took place, for a couple of months or even years, I have been saying that the U.S.-Turkey relationship, as we have known it, is already dead. Uh, So now we are facing the consequences. So it's not because of Turkey's operation uh, that this relationship may be coming to an end, but actually Turkey is conducting this operation because the relationship is already over. There are three main reasons uh, why the U.S.-Turkey relationship uh, has come to this situation, Uh, and I believe that these three core problems are generating uh, all the other problems uh, that we talk about. The first one is uh, mutual suspicions. Uh, in In a very... In a nutshell, uh, Turkey is suspicious that the United States has a long-term plan of creating a Kurdish state along Turkey's borders. The Turkish public, or rather governing party circles, believe that the United States has a plan to overthrow President Erdogan. So these are two main suspicions on the Turkish side. Well, in the, in the United States side, many people in the United States increasingly are suspicious that at some point Turkey could flip to the dark side. You know, the dark side being mainly Russia, China, Iran. Uh, etc. But that Turkey would not remain loyal to the United States when it mattered. And then the second suspicion is that Turkey actually has an Islamist foreign policy agenda uh, that is not entirely revealing that could threaten uh, the national security interests of certain uh, U.S. allies in the Middle East. Now, whether these suspicions are true or not, they are still the perceptions that both countries are basing their decisions on. So these perceptions become placeholders for reality. This is the first core problem. The second core problem is the lack of a valid strategic framework of the relationship. The Turkish-US relationship was born during the Cold War. And the strategic framework of this relationship was based on the Cold War realities, uh, which are no longer valid. So we actually uh, need a new strategic framework based on uh, the current realities, rather than the realities of a few uh, decades ago. Now, the third problem uh, may seem trivial, uh, but actually may be more important than either of the first two problems, which is that the strategic ownership of the U.S.-Turkey relationship has collapsed. Now, in the past, during the Cold War, the institutional owners of the relationship were 
the American military and the Turkish military. Due to political changes in Turkey, the Turkish military is no longer a political player in Turkey. Now, on the contrary, in the United States, after September 11, uh, the US military gained upper hand uh, in foreign policy formulation, which could have been a positive development for Turkey because the US military, after all, was the owner of the relationship. But something has happened uh, as well, which is that the balance of power uh, within the US military shifted away from the UCOM to the CENTCOM. The UCOM was uh, the branch of the American military which the Turkish military had been engaging for decades. They spoke the same language, meaning not, not meaning English or Turkish, uh, but they understood each other, they had cooperated during the Cold War, they were brothers, they were comrades, etc. Whereas with the CENTCOM, the Turkish military does not have the same positive experience. On the contrary, because the Turkish military was very reluctant during both the Gulf and the Iraq wars uh, to cooperate with the US military, uh, the, the CENTCOM has a very negative opinion of the Turkish military. So the institutional ownership of the relationship has weakened uh, because of this. When we talk about the individual ownership of the relationship, the relationship is now so toxic uh, on both sides of the Atlantic uh, that individuals who still believe in the relationship remain to be silent because it's too dangerous to speak up for the relationship. So these three factors, mutual distrust, lack of a valid strategic framework, and the collapse of the strategic community and the ownership of the relationship uh, has brought the relationship to an end. And hence now we are going through all of these crises. This situation with the United States, but of course, I mean, this operation has added uh, to the problems between Turkey and the United States. Also, Turkey found itself within the domestic political discussion in the United States because this all happened in the middle of impeachment procedures uh, in the United States when the US political class was overly polarized and Turkey in a way is now guilty by association to President Trump when he is actually becoming less and less popular. And of course, President Trump's decision to withdraw troops has been very unpopular and Turkey is kept responsible, held responsible for this in the United States. Now, Turkey's relations with the EU are actually uh, much deeper, multidimensional and, and stronger compared to Turkey's relations uh, with the United States. It's multidimensional, it's not only security, but there's a very strong economic dimension. Now, immigration uh, is a very important dimension, not only in terms of managing Syrian refugees and other refugees, but there are sizable groups of Turks as citizens of various European countries. I mean, three million in Germany, two million in France, etc. And also, you know, Europeans coming to Turkey as tourists, European companies profiting in the, from their investments in Turkey, etc. Uh, so the relationship is actually very strong, so it can actually survive temporary shocks as we are witnessing right now. And also, of course, there is the issue of managing refugees, uh, which is very important for the European Union, but also for Turkey. And then countering terrorism together, uh, which makes uh, intelligence sharing crucial. So neither the European Union uh, has a luxury to divorce from Turkey, nor Turkey has a luxury to divorce uh, from the European Union. So I believe that the EU-Turkey relationship uh, will prove much more resilient compared to the US-Turkey relationship. What about NATO? It seems like we were already a little bit on thin ice in terms of Turkey's purchase of the S-400 
Russian missile defense system. How is this going to play into the NATO relationship? I know some folks are suggesting that Turkey may leave NATO. Others are saying that would never happen. So what's your opinion on that? There are also others uh, who argue that Turkey's NATO membership, Turkey should be suspended from NATO. I believe those people have not read the NATO treaty because there is no suspension clause. So uh, if we leave aside the possibility of Turkey being Turkey's membership being suspended, uh, would Turkey ever uh, leave NATO? I mean, just to give you uh, one figure, the economy of Russia is the size of the economy uh, of Italy, as one Turkish political scientist uh, has drawn attention to recently. So like uh, Russia would never be a placeholder for uh, NATO, so far as Turkey's uh, security is concerned. And also, there is no strategic compatibility between Russia and Turkey on regional and global issues. I mean, even on Syria, uh, where we do cooperate, actually the end goals uh, we are aiming to achieve are different. So Russia's end goal is keeping Assad in power. Turkey's end goal, which is not achievable any longer, was actually overthrowing Assad. So does Turkey still need NATO? Yes, Turkey still needs NATO very much because the alternative would be impossibly expensive for Turkey. Well, does NATO need Turkey? Well, if you look at it from the perspective of the Syrian civil war, the answer may be no. But if you look at it from the perspective of containing Russian aggression, I think that containing Russian aggression would be extremely difficult. Not, not that it's easy now, but it would be very much more difficult if Turkey was not a member of NATO. Let's not forget that Turkey is actually controlling two straits which control the passage in and out of uh, the Black Sea. And of course, cooperation on the Turkish straits might, might not be uh, perfect uh, at the moment due to the deterioration of the relationship between Turkey and the United States. But it's still crucial. Turkey is NATO's second largest army and it's the most significant NATO member on uh, Russia's southern flank. And then, of course, there is the Russian projection of power into eastern Mediterranean. And although there, is, there are also efforts to contain Turkey in the eastern Mediterranean by some two members, Turkey is also crucial uh, in terms of containing Russia in the eastern Mediterranean. So I do not see either Turkey's membership to NATO being suspended or Turkey leaving NATO. What we could see is that in a situation where there is extreme distrust uh, between Turkey and other uh, NATO allies, uh, there could be creative ways to exclude Turkey from NATO exercises, from multilateral defense projects, etc. So not maybe, maybe not suspending Turkey's membership, but actually marginalizing Turkey's role in NATO uh, and diminishing NATO's reassurance uh, over Turkey's security. Uh, unfortunately, I do see that happening. I want to go back to something that you said about Turkey's initial endgame, which you said isn't achievable, which is to overthrow or end the Assad regime. Can you talk a little bit about Erdogan's relationship with Assad and maybe and how his view of Assad and his power has changed over the years and, and in recent months? Well, I mean, before the Arab uprisings began, uh, actually... Assad was uh, Erdogan's pet project. So Erdogan uh, wanted to uh, turn Assad into a legitimate, internationally 
legitimate actor. He was actually working with Assad and Turkey was acting with Syria to reform Syria so that Syria would be internationally more acceptable. Back then, Turkey itself was actually internationally acceptable in terms of democratic credentials. So in the beginning of the Arab Spring, Turkey actually sent messages to Assad uh, that if you reform today, uh, you may save your country from this wave of revolutions. And actually back then, foreign minister Ahmed Davutoğlu visited Assad and had a day-long meeting with him to plan what kind of reforms Assad would make. And Assad actually responded positively to all suggestions. But the day after, then Foreign Minister Davutoğlu left Damascus, Assad started killing his own civilians in the month of Ramadan, which is even worse uh, from the perspective of Erdogan, because Muslims are not supposed to be fighting in Ramadan. So that was a turning point. And then, of course, internationally, there was an effort to create regime change in Syria as well. And Turkey jumped on the bandwagon and Turkey invested in the groups that were trying to overthrow Assad. So from this point on, uh, actually, Assad looked very vulnerable. Uh, When did Assad's vulnerability uh, start diminishing? Uh, This is actually when uh, Assad used chemical weapons against civilians in Syria And back then, the Trump administration uh, said that retaliation could be so that the red line uh, had been crossed and a retaliation uh, was imminent. But then the Trump administration did not follow up. And as a reaction, uh, Russia uh, entered the theater, uh, made deployments in Syria, set up aid to aiding capabilities uh, in the uh, northwest of the country and started uh, controlling the airspace. Uh, in the western uh, part of Syria. Iran uh, also entered more more substantially uh, with its uh, militia uh, and with the combined efforts uh, of uh, Russia and Iran, uh, Assad had already, uh, you know, increased his chances of survival. On the other side of the table, uh, the opposition to Assad uh, was fragmented, uh, not uh, full-heartedly into this. So at, at point, in time came, in which actually Turkey was maybe together Qatar, uh, the only country still trying to uh, overthrow the Assad regime. And by then, Assad had already won the war. So it was a matter of time in which he would finalize this. So, you know, with, of course, with massive U.S. withdrawal from Syria, now Assad will enter other towns and cities that were beyond his control, and he will continue consolidating his will over Syria. Of course, Assad has won the war. He is now winning a country that's broken, that's bumped to ruins, a society that is divided, even when we don't consider the six million people who have fled to other countries. So yes, Assad has won the war. He cannot be overthrown, but he has actually won a broken country. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon. 